All right. For those of you who remain, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you would, to John 1, a very familiar section of Scripture, but unbelievably profound. We have the Scripture on the screens. But as always, I want to invite you and encourage you to to keep a copy of your own Scriptures. You never know if I'm going to try to pull a fast one. Or you never know if the slide generator creates an error. And I would hate for you to be forever consigned to hell because you happen to pay attention the one time there's error and you believe a lie for all eternity. I know I'm saying it kind of dramatically. But... Part and parcel of being a person of the book is that you have a book, right? So, plus it's good to take notes. If you look at my Bible, you'll see notes and underlines. And I'm sure some of you have notes that will put mine to shame. And that's good. So get a physical copy of the Bible and write it up. Okay? All right. So John 1, 1 to 14. We read... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Brothers and sisters, this is God's Word for us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank You so much for this Word. It is profound. It is inexhaustible in its depths of riches. And we ask that now, as we look at it, we would see the beauty of Christ and the beauty of His promise. And we would see how the Christmas season provides us an excellent opportunity to wonder. And so we ask that You would be with us even now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When I think of wonder, 
uh, not wonder like, like puzzling over something, but wonder uh, in the sense of awe and amazement mixed with admiration. Christmas is a time of wonder. We go and we, many of us will, will go on a tour of lighted homes and, and we love to see the Christmas light displays. We love the shining lights. We love especially refracted light. You know, when, when light shines off of something else like a bulb or, or better yet, snow. Oh man, that's just sublime. But when I think of, of wonder... Uh, perhaps no scene in a movie captures it best for me like in Christmas Story. When little Ralphie, it's near the beginning, and, and he goes to the department store window, you know, and there's the great crowd of people around. And what does little Ralphie do? You know, he worms his way to the front, and he pushes his face against the window, and there's this beautiful Christmas thing going on. They have a beautiful display, and there's a train and everything. And he sees the object of his desire. What is it? A red rider BB. All right, that's right. With a little cut. There you go. And he's just in in mouth open, wide eyed wonder. And for me, that scene in that movie sort of captures what we think of when we think of wonder at the Christmas season. It is a time when people are in awe, and we admire beauty. And we admire and, and, and desire that sense of, of hominess that comes from celebrating the holiday. But like last week, where we talked about how people are continually asking, what is the reason for the season? And, they're, and, and they know that Christmas is supposed to be a time of hope and joy, but there's really no basis for it. And we know that the answer is not anything other than Jesus. And so as Christians, we have an opportunity to know the reason for the season in the sense of we have a reason for hope in the world. And the coming of Jesus at the first advent provides the basis for that. That God spoke into history and He came. But simultaneously in this world, We want to gaze in wonder at beauty, at loveliness. We want to have that sense of excitement about the beauty and the the foretaste of what's coming. And isn't that not what Christmas is the excitement about, is what's coming? We have this long Christmas season and it's anticipation of what's coming. And every kid knows that the closer you get to Christmas, the more excited you become. The further down the road you go, the closer you get to what you're getting. Do you become more excited? As you think about the fact that wherever you were 10 years ago, you are 10 years closer now to your destination. Are you more excited? Has the mystery and the loveliness of Jesus and what He has done and what He came for and what you were made for and what He has promised, has that filled you with a sense of wonder? So that way now, ten years passed from ten years before 
or 20 years past from 20 years before. Whatever. Do you increasingly long for your reward for Christmas Day? Or for you, is it always winter and never Christmas? Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the Christmas season, like I said last year, it's not holy, but it is helpful. Because celebrating and remembering the coming of Jesus as a historic event is one of the two great historical realities that undergird our faith. He came, and He came from a virgin. That, that's offensive and ridiculous to scientific mind. No one has a problem with believing that, that, that a man named Jesus died. Because people die. He came. He, in, he was incarnate. And he resurrected. A dead man became alive again. Two audacious historical claims that inform our faith. So Christmas affords us the opportunity to remember that in the bleakness of life, in the darkness that, that was the culture, a piercing light came. And Jesus was born. And He has indeed fulfilled the mission of God. At Christmas time, along with the sense of wonder that is so natural, Christmas is a time with lots of buzzwords. We have lots of words that we think of when we think of Christmas. Some of them are, you know, joy, jolly, that's a good Christmas word, right? <clears throat> Tree, bells, you think of bells at Christmas, right? Uh, what about lights, presents? I would love to say we think of snow, but, you know, we're maybe a little too far south for that. I mean, how about rain? No, we, we think family, traditions, candles. Okay, these words inform. Now, and interestingly, our passage today from John 1 uh, introduces us to a lot of the words that become themes throughout the book. We all know that Matthew and Luke... Tell us what happened that first Christmas day. The day that Jesus was born. They tell us what happened. Mark, he just wants to get to the action. John is a little more reflective. He doesn't tell us what happened on that first Christmas day. But he tells us the meaning of what happened on that first Christmas day. Which is why he doesn't begin in a, in a stable. He doesn't begin with a census. He begins where? In the beginning. The first words of this gospel, in the beginning. What does that sound like? The book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now here, he wants to take it back. Okay, something important happened on that first Christmas day and you should be in awe of it. Here's what it is. That in the beginning, you know, you know, back when God created the heavens and the earth, in the beginning, when things began, was the Word. 
the Word was. When everything began, the Word was. In other words, the Word was not one of the things created in the beginning. When everything started up, the Word was already there. The Word was. And the Word was with God. There are many prepositions in Greek that can be translated by the English word with. But this one, this one is the same word that is used down here uh, in verse uh, 14. And he became flesh and dwelt among. My Bible says among, but it's the same word that's in verse 1 with, was with God. That's important. This word is a preposition that implies proximity and focus of relationship. So in the beginning, the word was. And this word was focused on in an intimate relationship with God. So he's intimate. He's God's intimate. And lo and behold, the Word was God. So here you see a distinction between the Word and God, but then you see a unity of the Word and God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, this is an important thing for us to wonder at. Because two months ago in October, Ligonier released their, their, their survey, the State of Theology, where it was revealed that 73% of evangelicals believe that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. Brothers and sisters, that's heresy. The first person who, who believed that, who taught that, was a guy named Arius in the early church. Incidentally, you know, we celebrate Christmas time, and, and, and the big figure in secular mind is, is, is Santa Claus, which is the Englification of the Dutchification of St. Nicholas. But at the Council of Nicaea in 325, when the early church came together to, to confront Arius' idea that Jesus was the first and greatest thing created by God, and He was divine, and that He shared attributes of deity, and He was endowed with a greater sense of the glory of God, but He was not God. And the early church came together to confront that. Old boy St. Nicholas was there. And legend says that he punched old Arius in the face. Now, I know they were rougher and tougher back then. I, I have a hard time thinking of a bishop punching another guy in the face. Maybe I'm wrong. But the legend sounds kind of funny. But anyway, the mystery of Christmas is that the Son of God came. And because of what Jesus did, we can have hope in life. But that's all undermined if we lose sight of the fact that what came was not some divine, quasi-angelic creature. What was born in that manger 
was the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, equal in substance and nature with God the Father, by whom and through whom everything that has been made was made, that, div- that God was born in the manger. God in the flesh. He came in the flesh. Now, we all know that logos, the word here is the Greek word logos. And we all know that in Greco thought, philosophic thought, Logos meant rationality, the, the, the reason behind everything. And that's true. You know, what's interesting is we know about Plato and Aristotle, and they did too. By the time John was writing this, Plato and Aristotle were dead for centuries. They came centuries before Jesus. So they weren't dummies. And so we might be tempted to think that in, in John's writing, he's informed primarily by the, the Greek philosophical concept of the rationality behind everything. That So what we have here is the reason for it all or something. But most biblical scholars now understand that, that John, being a simple fisherman, was not educated like Paul. And that more likely than not, he's not borrowing from Greek thought. He's borrowing from Old Testament thought. Where the word of the Lord comes regularly and powerfully. The word of the Lord is more than just a message from God. We think that's just old timey speech. And, you know, and they say the word of the Lord came to me. When what we would say is, yeah, I got a message from God. Okay? That's not what it means. The word of the Lord is efficacious. And it's the Lord's power and presence in His very locutive speech act. And so we can even say it's salvific. Like in Psalm 107, they cried to the Lord and it says the Lord sent His word and delivered them. The Lord's word will not return void, but it's active and powerful and it accomplishes the thing it is sent out to do. The Word of the Lord is authoritative. The Word of the Lord creates what it says. So when the Lord speaks, it is. In fact, what we would say when you study the Word of the Lord in the Old Testament, that it's His self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. So if it's God's powerful self-disclosure that affects the thing it says, including salvation, then what greater way to communicate that God has disclosed Himself than in the personification of that word in a person? And so the Word of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. So the thing that we should be in wonder about is that the eternal Son of God was willing to take on flesh. Why is that amazing? Because it's eminently humbling. 
for the Creator to become like the created, especially given man's backdrop. Verses 5-11 to tells us this. The light shines in the darkness. Those are two buzzwords that are going to be developed by John later in this book. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, and that's going to be developed in the book, to bear witness about the light. That's going to be developed in the book. That all might believe through him. Okay, real quick. He begins his book in 1-7 pointing out that the point of it all was to elicit belief in Jesus. And then how does he end his book in chapter 20? These things are written that you might believe and have life in his name. Okay, The whole point of all of this is that we might believe. Okay, so then keep going. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And then verses 10 and 11. He was in the world. And the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own. And His own people did not receive Him. The world was made through Him. But it did not know Him. It didn't recognize Him. It didn't acknowledge Him. And then even more intimately, He came to His own people. And His own people refused Him. In fact, His own people killed Him. So that's what makes verse 5 amazing. Is that in the face of a world and of of, of a people that not only didn't want Him around, but they proactively persecuted and killed Him and sought to suppress Him and then... In this own world, the world continues to militate against the church, against the truth. And then what we read in verse 5 is all the more amazing, therefore. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we think things are going down. We think all hope is lost. But it is not. So the Son of God came... And man's backdrop is one of rebellion, resistance, and refusal. But our Lord Jesus shines in the darkness. He does not give up. He doesn't throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. And how do we know that? Because even though the bulk did not receive Him, what does verse 12 and 13 say? We love these verses. Memorize these verses. But to everyone who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become what? Children of God. That's the beauty. That the eternal Son of God was on a mission and in the face of human refusal and resistance and rebellion and rejection and all of that, the light continues to shine in the darkness. Because there's a mission. And everyone who believes in Him, who receives Him, who responds properly per 1-7 and 20-30 to believe in the name of Jesus, you become a precious child of God. Born not of the will of the flesh or of the will... In other words, this isn't something that we chose to do. You may not have chosen to have your kids, but you chose to do the thing that caused the kids, right? 
But when we're born again, there's no human activity involved. It's the, it's the will of God that creates new life within us. And that's His gracious gift and promise to us. And it will never be destroyed because the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not and cannot overcome it. And why is that promise there? Because we were created for relationship and Jesus came for reconciliation. That is what verse 14 is all about. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you remember our series in Exodus when we talked about this? He dwelt among us. This is the same Word for the tabernacle. Remember Eden. Man was created to be in relationship with God. Eden was lost. We rebelled and we were exiled from the presence of God. But then after being brought close to God and into covenant relationship, in Exodus 25, we're told that the Lord wants to dwell with His people. To take up residence in, with, and among His people. And that was imperfect. And so Jesus comes... And He too has taken up residence with us because the goal is not just to know about us. He didn't come here to, to, to do some sort of scientific inquiry about us. He's not here for observational purposes. He's here to be with us, to relate with us. Which is why the end state is true in, Ex- in Revelation 21.3 when the voice in the throne says, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And He will be their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eye. That's the end state. So all along throughout redemptive history, you get glimpses of the fact that Jesus came for reconciliation. So the Son of God the Logos of God, the powerful, creating, saving Word of God took on flesh, became one of us. He really was a skinned-up, kneed, snot-nosed, drooling little baby boy. And He lived. And He died. And He rose again. And He ascended to glory so that we could relate with Him and have relationship with Him. And be in awe of the fact that the day is coming when everything will be made right. And we will dwell with Him forevermore. And there will no more be tears of sorrow and loss and hurt and pain. Brothers and sisters, there is much to be in wonder about Christmas. My prayer for you is that you will look at Christmas and see a season in which you can look forward with anticipation to what's coming. Because He took up flesh and dwelt among us as a foretaste of the dwelling with us that's going to happen forevermore. Do you look forward to that? Or is it always winter and never Christmas? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank You so much for coming. We thank You so much 
Jesus, for being willing to set aside all the prerogatives of glory for our sake. Help us to wonder, to delight with anticipation and amazement. Help us to look forward to what we've got coming because of You. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus in all things. We ask it in His name and for His sake. Amen.